Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank, a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Navi Doctor from Alkenia. Naveed, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Assalamualaikum. Yeah, thank you. I'm honoured to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. Just before we went live, you were telling me about how your wife is actually an artist. And I think you can really see that quite clearly in the background. So on my side, we've got this slightly disheveled looking bookcase. I use my head to cover this poster that says stay cool and chill out because I feel like it's a bit unprofessional. <laughs> And then on your side, it's very much on brand, isn't it? Alchemia is a beautiful brand. Yeah. First of all, I'm very proud of my wife, Zara Hussain, her work. So I always try to do what I can to support my wife. But also, yeah, the whole thing is about showing the beauty of Islam. Allah is beautiful and loves beauty. So we make a real point of pushing that. Fantastic. And Nabid, I reached out to you because I followed your journey for quite a while, on and off. And Alhamdulillah, I'm really happy to see that you on here for a number of reasons. Firstly, because it's great to see Muslim entrepreneurship. Secondly, it's great to see Muslim entrepreneurship in an area that Muslims are historically very underrepresented in and not very good at, even when they do get involved at. And thirdly, because you guys have recently become part of Amazon Prime. I mean, I say recently, relatively recently. And I thought it'd be just a fantastic moment to just check in with you on that whole journey, especially, I think, given your long track record in the field as well, in the field of media. But before we get into all of that, Nabi, do you want to just give us maybe like a really quick snapshot of Alchemia and then we'll rewind all the way back to how it all started? Yeah, it's a video on demand service, a subscription video on demand service, and it's aimed at what we call the global urban Muslim. So we made some very clear distinctions when we started. We always wanted to make sure that the content was very professional we're finding broadcast quality content from around the world. We also wanted to make sure that it covered a very global viewpoint of what Islamic culture is and Islamic history. We made a distinction that it's not a religious channel. We're not really prescriptive. So we're not teaching people how to practice Islam. We're much more descriptive. So what we're sharing is really this idea of just what's come out of Islam, the culture, the kind of civilization, the science, the thought. And so we wanted to do all of that. It sort of works on many, many different levels. And the initial idea was that perhaps it would be a channel in the conventional sense. But as we started to kind of research and get going, it was obvious that that whole shift out of that movement into kind of video online and video on demand was there. And it made sense for us to there. We are a large collection of content. It's very, very diverse. Predominantly, our customer base is 
educated. They're in the West. They're mostly Muslims of the West, so Europe, UK, US. But when we sort of went further afield, we realized actually they're everywhere. These kind of people are everywhere. And we also made two very specific points in terms of the editorial. One, we don't do current affairs. We really wanted to decouple the idea of Islam as only something as you see on the news. We don't really go into what's going on now at the moment. We don't do any political analysis. And also we made a very conscious point that if a non-Muslim was to come to the channel, they will watch it. You'll find something useful. So, yeah, not more than useful, something that they'll really like and they'll love and they'll learn something. And so because of that, we really avoid the language and the kind of specialist language, clothing, all of that kind of stuff even everything from the fonts to the design, it's really, really tailored to feel like a mainstream service. So there's no extra green domes with gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And get that kind of branding. Yeah. That's done very purposely not to put people off, not to put non-Muslims off because it's hard to estimate. It could be in the past we've had as much as 10% of the customer base, but we do believe that that was a very important part of what we wanted to achieve was to, a non-Muslim should feel that, if there's a documentary on the architecture of Yemen and they're interested in that, they can come here and watch it. Definitely. And I really want to dig into that later on. But Naveed, the first thing I wanted to do, especially for some of our audiences who might want to go into the media at some point, or some of our audiences who lament the fact that there aren't that many Muslims in the media or the media industry generally, I just thought it'd be absolutely fascinating to just kind of pick through your history. You worked at the BBC initially, then Channel 4, you freelance, you were quite a senior person, and in many ways still are a senior person in the industry, specifically from a Muslim and a diversity lens. So I really wanted to understand how early was it when you realised that you wanted to actually go into this whole area? It's hard to say, really, but I think I sort of belong to that generation. I'm not quite the first arrivals into mainstream British life in terms of my brother's generation. He's a bit older than me. They were literally the first brown kids at school. And I was, in fact, in my family, I was the first who was born in Britain. There was a joke that I was the one who had the British passport before everybody, you know, in the family. So because when my dad came in the late 50s and then it was the five-year plan, make money and go back. And so actually we, it was odd somebody was being, a child was being born here. So by the time I got to school, there was a number of us. And I think those of us who had bilingual, so we spoke Punjabi, I spoke a bit of Urdu, I'd often get called into the headmaster study to help translate with some parents. And so actually so that is the process of mediating. You're explaining from one thing to another. And so I just seem to have these natural skills. And then we did go back. I went back to Pakistan and I had a whole year in Pakistan, which it was a very difficult time for me. I was 10 years old and I came back very angry as a teenager. I really felt that I missed out a lot on life and all the things, fish and chips and all the things, you know, blue pizza. I sort of had the rock <laughs> underneath my feet. And I think my dad tried it for a year as an experiment, gave up. Mm. The good thing I got back now, obviously, I improved my Urdu. I learned a lot about our heritage, country. And then when I came back, I went through a very rebellious phase. And I think that's really what I saw people who are in the media tend to be troublemakers. So I just used to kind of watch a lot of TV because you're talking about social isolation. Well, we lived through that as kids because if you went out, you got your head kicked. It was a very difficult time. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time sitting indoors watching telly or looking at to navigate past people who could be quite violent, especially where I grew up in East London. You wanted to stay away from certain groups of people. Where about in East London were you? Walthamstow. And that's oh, right, okay. Walthamstow with an F. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm a, I'm a cotton geezer. But what happened was, I think 
one of the things I didn't want to buy into was this idea of class. I didn't like the idea of class. I kind of feel, and actually as I've studied Islam more, there is just no notion of it. Sure. You can be the most noble person, have no money whatsoever. Your nobility is connected to your behavior. Your class and status is really accorded to your understanding of the sunnah and your understanding of actually other behavior. So it's got nothing to do with wealth. Whereas in this society, it was always meant to education and stuff. And I always felt aspiration to kind of look beyond simply what was going on around. And of course, from home, we got this idea that you've got to study, you've got a great opportunity, and you must study. And that's what we did. But I was 16 or 17. And there was a debate on television. First, multicultural programs had come out and Channel 4 did a show, East and I, are we Asian or are we British? That kind of thing. And this is still going on. So at the age of 16, I wrote in, and I got called in, and I got called into a studio and off I went and I did the studio debate when eventually it came on at the weekend my dad used to work in restaurants he was a chef in restaurants and he never watched any television but it was the first time he thought well okay well, he's on telly so this is a big deal let's watch, <laughs> let's watch yeah. and of course you know all I had was like one little question I put my hand up I was in the audience that kind of thing but my dad sat and watched the whole show and what was great about that show was that it was my generation. It was really talking about Asian, British Asians and what our issues were, where the clashes were coming from. We were facing racism outside in the street. We were facing parents who didn't get us, who thought we should just be behaving like we we're living back in Pakistan. So there was this massive clash. And this show really helped kind of express all of that, Eastern Eye. So he watched it. It was interesting. And I think it helped him understand a little bit of what I was going through. But what was interesting was he started to watch every week. And then one week, on comes this guy, ah, you know, and he's like, ah, oh, my dad's so excited. This is Fatih Khan, this is Koalis. And I'm like, no, 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 Ugh, I don't, I'm not sure if I like that kind of stuff. It's interesting. And then a week later, John Peel's playing Nusrat. And then Nusrat's gone to WOMAD. And then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, have you seen this Pakistani guy? And suddenly like, what? The guy my dad likes is cool. It's like suddenly being Pakistani could be cool. And I began to realise, actually, that when I went to the studios and I met people on television, I thought, I never thought Pakistanis did this. I came from a family who had corn shops and my dad yeah. worked in a restaurant. And it was like, you'll get an education and you'll be a doctor, a lawyer or an engineer. And it's like, here are people working in television and talking about culture and ideas. And that was it. I was grabbed. But I didn't think I would work in television. It's just simply... I was studying design at the time, which was also causing a lot of trouble for me because my parents just didn't understand what the point of that was. So how old were you at this point? You were 17, at this point or? Yeah, 17, 18. So I went off to university. I got a degree in design. And when I graduated, terrible recession, 1990, awful recession and no work whatsoever. And all, all this kind of design work got pulled. So a lot of people left for Hong Kong, places like that. And actually, I started to write, and I did start to write about Kuali music, about Bhangra, about my culture. And just from those early credits, then people said, look, there's opportunities in television. If you can write, you can apply for this. And it just seemed the kind of right thing to do. And there was a lot of pressure to get a career at that time, but that whole world was freelancing. It was always very kind of, you get three months here and four months here. And Nabil, I wanted to really kind of hone in on this point here, because so many of our community are still, I think, in that same mindset where, and probably understandably, which is that the media and acting, whatever creative professions there are, they're often very high risk professions. And certainly in the first five, 10 years, you're almost waiting for your kind of break to come along. And it's very chancy. And that is a real barrier to getting into those fields, right? And then I can understand what the opposition to that is. But then the flip side is that if we don't run that gamut, if we don't try and get into those fields, then we're going to 
not have anyone in those fields. And I just wanted to understand, perhaps your advice would be to someone who wants to work in the media industry or wants to work in a creative space where you are going to have to do a bit of hustling at the start. What were your kind of lessons or things that you could kind of give people who would be in that situation? I think the the problem is they're not relevant anymore because it's changed so much. When I went, there were four channels. Sky had just barely started. There was no Asian channels whatsoever. There was just no Muslim channels. So there wasn't much choice if you weren't going to go take that route. And that route was a, mm. there were a lot of gatekeepers. You had to be fairly, fairly kind of integrated. It was just a normal culture to go to the pub on Friday. So going off to read Jummah, you'd just lie. Why are you not coming with us to the pub? You would never say, I'm going to the mosque. You wouldn't out yourself as a Muslim. It was completely, yeah. you know, like you're off. And actually, we got in because it was this idea of being Asian. And Asian was Muslim, Sikh and Hindu together. It was just a kind of a composite idea. And that was okay. Yeah. And so the Muslim bit of it, and again, Rushdie had happened, all this. So it was very, very uncomfortable for people to kind of think that you actually believed in Islam and stuff. So you just mm. kept quiet, really. And I think what, how things have changed is that, yeah, I mean, some things have not changed. Look, if you think it's a career, you're going to really not succeed. I mean, you can't have the same parallels you can have with medicine or with finance in these areas because even people who have got years and years of experience, you can be flavor of the day. You can catch the zeitgeist and suddenly what you're doing is in demand and suddenly you can find yourself out of work again. You can see that with the lives of many, many people. So I think what definitely is that it's a calling. It's something that you think this is me. It suits your personality and you know you've got a passion for it. And if you have a passion for something, your purpose, which increasingly is something even that I've had to kind of really dig in and get coached on, understand what was that purpose that I have? Why am I doing this? Because yeah. financially the link is very weak. It takes a long time for you to achieve that. You're right there, definitely in that. But I think once you know this is what you want to do and it's in your purpose, then you stop caring, really. You stop caring. Mm. The reward it brings you is doing the work rather than the money. Were you kind of going from job to job in that early stage? Um, yeah, it's very useful for a lot of people, even in many, many professions, that change jobs often when you're younger. And that allows you to just experience different cultures of different workplaces. And it's very valued in the media industry that you've jumped, you've done five months here, six months here, a year here, because you're just getting trained while you're doing that. And you're seeing different aspects of it. And I definitely understood at that time, look, current affairs is not really for me. I'm not that interested. I had studied design. I was very passionate about culture and arts and history, all of those kind of ideas. And so by the time I got into the BBC, I was doing programs on nothing to do with Muslims or Asian people. I started making programs on architecture and design, which I was very passionate about. That's what came across when they hired me. They understood that I had that passion, which means you go the extra mile. So I used to bring all, sure. all of that together. How old were you at that point? I was in my sort of mid-20s, 24, 25, like that. And between 24, 25 and 29, about four or five years, I did a lot of military history. I worked in the history department at the BBC, which was like working in a university. I mean, there were four PhDs from Oxford and Cambridge. And there was me, some Pakistani guy, you know, with with, his, uh, with a very useless degree from a polytechnic. But where I held my own was they sort of specialised in certain types of Tudor history or the Roman Empire or whatever. Look, I went home and studied. I believed in lifelong study. I still do. I got the books out. I could tell you minutiae details about Aurangzeb and the Mughals and the history of this. So it was 
for everybody who talked about the Bodicea or all of that kind of stuff, I could explain to them about the Abbasids and about the Golden Age. And I think it's a question of finding that sort of niche for yourself. And I sort of did that. I mean, I worked on a documentary on the life of the Shah, and it was incredible. It was like a quarter of a million pounds went into that for over a one and a half year period. And it was the first time that the Shah had been reappraised. And I learned a lot. It's almost like writing a PhD, one of these documentaries, yeah, because you're ten of the world's experts who all hate each other's guts and won't speak to each other. <laughs> but you are the PhDs and they'll talk to you. And I was never the senior guy at that point. I was in the assistant producer. And a couple of times I felt very frustrated. Look, I've been treading water. I'd like to get promotion. And they were like, look, this is the BBC. This is how we do it. You can leave if you like. If you go to other organisations, they'll make you a producer in six months. But I'm glad now I stuck it out because I made some incredible films. And Navi, for someone who's looking from the outside in, it's all often really hard for me and maybe members of the audience to work out exactly what goes behind creating a documentary or creating a film. What are the kind of day-to-day things that you were doing? What was the difference between what you did and perhaps what the producer did? When we say film or movies, that's a very different process. Sure. I, I sort of was in what you call factual documentaries. So often it is very similar to if a person was going to write a very large dissertation or a doctorate on something specific. So once you've actually outlined what the kind of thesis is of what you're going to explore, then the researcher in the team would be responsible for just basically scanning very widely. And again, when I started out, there was no internet. You would go to the BBC library. And then from the BBC library, you may go to the British library. You may then go to a specialist library. So if you're doing the Vietnam War, you go to somewhere where there's military records, probably sort of the Pentagon or something like that. And then you'd call these up and then they'd be sent to you. And I'd done that for about a good few years. So you learn very, very thorough research, how to cast a net very wide. And at the same time, you're looking for those voices. You're looking for who's going to give the testimony, who's the right contributor. You're being encouraged to assess that. The assistant producer's job, it's the same thing, a little bit more responsibility. They're also then scanning around for how do we get access. I did a film on the samurai sword. And for that, who are the five best experts in the world who can explain the history of the samurai sword? Then you kind of end up in the British Museum and you realise this person, he's a specialist on the Mongolian invasion of Japan. That fits into our story. And you'd go out, look at locations. And the skills you need is what classical arts education, really. I mean, that's why virtually everybody in the place is either Oxford or Cambridge. You need to have an ability to organise facts. You need to analyse. You need to present information very carefully. And you need to manage budgets. You need to organise shoots. So there's a huge amount of multi-skilling that's required. It's almost like running a little business of your own. How early in this process of you creating this documentary and trying to feel out the pieces of facts are, who's going to be speaking, that sort of thing, how early is it that you start piecing together a narrative around that? Because obviously I come from a Muslim background, I'm very sceptical. I'm probably less sceptical than I think a lot of Muslims may be as well. But how does that whole editorial piece get controlled and how is the narrative like structured? There is quite a large hierarchy there and so often the first thing is you've got to convince the person who's in charge, who controls the channels, that this is worth doing. And they'll say to you, well, why should we cover this subject? Why should we do it? How to do it? I mean, one of the things was I developed over a period of a year. What happened was I felt very frustrated at the lack of Muslim programs. This is around about 97, 98. And I went through a lot of changes. I lost my mother to cancer. She was quite young. And it really made me kind of think very deeply about who I was as a Muslim. And I kind of really realized that actually it was very common that I had two identities. I had a very corporate 
business type identity and I had a Muslim identity. And increasingly, I thought the sensible thing is that I have to find some way of coming together. I wanted yeah. to be more authentic. I didn't want to kind of pretend anymore to people. And that didn't mean I was going to kind of like roll up my trousers and start jihad or anything, which <laughs> most people thought that's what that meant, but it didn't. It just simply meant that it's important. It's an important part of my identity. And so I left the kind of program making side and went over to where there were issues around diversity being discussed, around representation. And that sort of put me in much more of a bureaucratic job. And I did that mm. for a seven-month period because I was looking at audiences. What was going wrong? Why were we not able to satisfy the need for more Muslim programs or even just general black audience satisfaction, all of that kind of stuff. It can be on one side very technical. There's a lot of feedback. There's a lot of kind of understanding. There's a science to how you monitor what's happened. But then a lot of the other side of it is just simply qualitative. It's really kind of discussing what goes on. And from that, the idea of a whole Islam season emerged, that we, we needed to cover Islam because it's a growing issue. And remember, this is about 97, 98 for the first time ever, we organized a conference on the coverage of Islam at the BBC. And it was meant to be, I think, 20, 30 people. But I got a message that the director general, the guy at the top, suddenly he said, I'm interested, I want to come. As soon as he said he was interested, I mean, half the corporation wants to come. <laughs> all the senior management wants to come. And this, this thing just grew and grew and grew. I was responsible for bringing all the speakers in and Allah have mercy on you so the late Fuad Nadi, he just passed away. He was one of the guys I said, please, can you come? He was then the editor of Q News. Grassroots understanding, and we spoke, and he came and spoke, and we had a whole bunch of people talk there. But what came out of that was that they agreed that they should do a season of programs on Islam, call it the Islam season. I then went almost a year and a half journey of developing what they would be. And for me, the idea Amazing. To try and show the best of Islam, I always had thought, look, we're not seeing the best, let's see the best. So we did Islam and interior design, Islam and God. We did the Hajj. Nobody had shot the Hajj for almost 20, 30 years. A beautiful documentary on what trying to capture the experience of the Hajj, but also the House of Wisdom. I felt very frustrated at how badly we were represented. The intellect is missing. We're kind of getting Jajajis coming from the community to talk about the, let me tell you Islam. And it's like, actually, uh, we're producing some real great intellects and thinkers, and we have this amazing heritage, and at least let's put that forward. And it was an interesting experience. I think the whole season covered about 20, 30 programs. They scheduled them for all this when everyone's on holiday, of course. They were very nervous about <laughs> I did a series of four or five programs called Inspired by Islam. We interviewed people from Oxford on Abu Cases, of course, Abu Qasim, who is a great surgeon and he invented something like 400 instruments, some of them still in use today. So we covered all this incredible stuff and I was really hooked. I thought, wow, at last we're going to be able to show that. And these programs went out in August of 2001 and within 15 days of these programs going out, 9-11 happened. Oh, what yeah. a disaster. And that was it. It was like the handbrake was pulled on what we were beginning to do, setting the balance right, as it were, so that you could see the civilization of Islam and actually all this rich heritage we have and still have this potential, right? Instead of just yeah. being married. But that was it. Then it was off the cards. And then the next four or five years, I became this kind of go-to guy for what does jihad mean? Where is Bin Laden? Yeah. All of that kind of stuff. And six months before 7-7, I did a radio documentary. I went up to Tipton. I interviewed kids up in the north. I interviewed all sorts of people. And the conclusion of the documentary was that there's going to be bombings. In, there's going to be homegrown terrorism. And as soon as I put that out, special branch turned up, police turned up. They were like, how do you know this? 
the MCB, who I knew all of those guys at that time. You know, I was their friendly guy at the BBC. They really liked uh, Brother David. They were like, shame on you, shame on you. You're really letting the side down. Now you're saying that British Muslims are going to be terrible. Yeah. And then, of course, the worst happened. It was like, it wasn't hard talk. What, how did you know this was going to happen? It's like, well, <laughs> join the dots. It was, it was only a matter yeah. of time. Then the demand was there, and I did a dispatches, young, angry, and Muslim. And actually in that, it became very personal for me. And that's actually what I started to understand. Everybody I'm working with goes home, has a glass of wine and chills out and then moves on to their next assignment. I go home, I can't sleep for three days because the kid who's just told me how angry he is could be me, could be my cousin, yeah. could be my kids in the future. And we're in trouble. This is not good. As a journalist, you can feel quite frustrated because you're just simply reporting and you're not changing anything. Yeah. One of the things was I kind of really under, started to understand the extent to which actually you've seen this in the black community where if the only role model is the hip hop guy and the drug dealer, if that's what's continuously put to you, it's not surprising that actually that's what you then appropriate. You appropriate that. That was starting to happen in our community. Gone was the idea of being somebody who worked hard and studied hard, did well. What it was taking its place was that it actually was the point. They hate us and we should hate them. Since its launch, tens of thousands of Muslims have given zakat through NZF. We're the only platform with a national reach enabling you to give zakat to those who need it here. Across the country, Muslims are in need. Your zakat has the potential to change their lives. Just go to www.nzf.org.uk to calculate your zakat, choose how it's used, and keep updated about the impact it's having on the lives of Muslims where you live. NZF. Give zakat here. Naveed, I wanted to jump on to you started Gazelle Media, but I just wanted to get your like kind of quick snapshot thought on the representation of Muslims in the media has evolved. So it sounded like late 90s, early 2000s, you'd kind of helped bring about this idea that Islam is a positive thing and you wanted to share stuff about Islam. Maybe in the early 90s, it was much more Asians and Muslims were all kind of one thing. And then early 2000s was very much through the lens of terrorism and security. How do you think that's kind of changed over the last 15 or so years till the present date? The change is really being led by commerce. You can compare what's going on with us with what's going on perhaps with the gay movement in terms of gay identity as well, because there was also this sort of sense of not being welcome in the mainstream, being seen as marginal, and then a gradual sense of acceptance. But where these things start to really become serious is... We are consumer societies. Capitalism effectively is about the flow of money and the trade. And once you can actually say 5% of this country is Muslim and you see that as a threat, but what happens when you see that as an opportunity, then you start to think, actually, we need to serve them. We need to kind of do better because they're our customers. I think what's prompted some aspects of the change is just the realization that these are customers that we're talking to. These are people who've got power. They've got money to spend. They own properties, large families, they buy stuff. And so once you start seeing halal meat in every supermarket as the norm, and there's enormous resistance to things like that because there's still people who feel it's wrong. It should be halal yeah. meat cruel. And so actually when people start serving that and it becomes the norm, it's because it's about money. And that's happened to many, many other minority groups who were at one point vilified. Now, so even though that's taking place at the same time, I'm not naive. I spent a period of three years as the director of an organization called FAIR, Forum Against Islamophobia and Racism. It was one of the first ones that was set up. Again, it was set up about 98, 99, and it lived through all of that period. 
it had really good funding at first and it petitioned right up to the European High Court. So it did a lot of good work. But in the end, it just sort of got to the stage where actually when it was getting really bad, it lost its sense of direction. So I really do understand those aspects of what are the feeders for Islamophobia, what caused them. But what I would say is that actually it's very easy to just kind of discard all of the good stuff that's going on because actually we're seeing more political representation taking place. People are singing Muslim pub songs now because of Muslim football. <laughs> it's coming seeping into the culture. If you're a Liverpool fan, people call him a gift from Allah. And that's, a, that's an incredible sense of acceptance of Islam and that level. But at the same time, we just look at the shocking statistics of abuse and violence. Yeah. And it means that there's work still be done. The difference was, I think, when I was growing up, it was just pretty much very negative and we were even thinking should we even i mean in 2003 i made a program called i'm a muslim get me out of here and that was really looking at people who wanted to leave britain and or had migrated and just thought forget it it's never going to be home for us anymore they were moving to the i hear you on that on the halal meat point interesting side story is that my college during my first year at university race knows they were serving halal chicken and they hadn't told anyone because they were a bit embarrassed about it I was the one guy in the college who was like, I can't believe I've spent the entire year having salmon and vegetarian. (laughs) And there was halal meat. And there's a story in the papers about how Oxford colleges have been serving halal meat. And I'm like, if only I knew. I know. (laughs) If only I knew. So there we are. But Navid, I wanted to fast forward onto your starting your first, I think, entrepreneurial venture, which was Gazelle Media, which was a kind of media production consultancy type outfit. It would be great to hear your story about how that started and your experiences as an entrepreneur for the first time. Yeah, I'm a reluctant entrepreneur, shall we say. So what had happened was I got to the stage where I was really boring my friends because I was just doing nonstop, you know, terrorism and what's gone wrong and trying to do what they call forensic journalism and there was just, there was work aplenty for me. I was in demand, but it was somewhere I was dying inside. My soul was sort of dying. So whenever I see my friends, I'd moan as hell. And they would say, well, what's the answer? And I was like, look, we're doing nothing now. We're making nothing about Islamic gardens. We're making nothing about calligraphy or beautiful things and stuff. And people are just too busy talking about, is this film balanced? Because do we put both sides of the argument across? But actually, there's an imbalance of conversations just around problems. So what we're not actually showing is actually that there's just so much else that exists, which is perfectly fine. People are just getting on with their lives and they're okay. And so I had a friend who he had gone from being like a consultant on a very, very good in the energy business and literally became a multimillionaire overnight. He was at the right time at the right place, started a very good energy business and their exit from that just netted them a lot of money and he did incredibly well. So he said, look, I'm going to back you. Everything seems to suggest that there's going to be opportunities gradually things will be moving to the net let's get going come on and really i think it was almost a two years of me being in denial because i just wanted to change change the bbc i wanted to go back i wanted to go back to channel four and change them and he used to say to me you're like the domestic abuse victim in that you you're not happy you don't like them (laughs) you don't like what they're doing and yet you keep going back why do you want to go back why can't you see that you should be taking these guys on you should be feeling and i like this is just ridiculous talk how can someone like us take on such this vast corporations and these are huge organizations he's like look if they don't want muslim customers you should grab the muslim customers for yourself why do you not see that And of course, I was very cynical. I just was very corporatized. I'd been institutionalized. I just couldn't see how we're ever going to make it work. But he had an incredible drive and he 
really put his money where his mouth was. And it concerned, that concerned me as well, because I know these things, they don't make money at first. It takes a lot of investment and stuff. But what happened was we came up with an idea called the Muslim Cafe. And it was virtually the first days of video online. And we didn't put it on YouTube. YouTube was about a year old when we started. And we started to record a discussion of what appeared to be inside a Moroccan cafe. And we designed it all. And it was beautiful. We brought different people in. And we had no presenters, and they, we just set them a topic. We'd film it, edit it very simply. I mean, all of the, and what, of course, what happened soon as I came there, a couple of pals from the BBC who also were fed up, they joined me, and we just started to kind of turn this thing out. And it was very high production quality values, and we created the Muslim Cafe website, and we did discussions like, is Harry Potter halal? What's the problem with Muslim men? That was one of our best sellers, you know. <laughs> it's like people queuing enough to watch that. <laughs> problem with Muslim men part two and three because it got so many views you know 70% of females watching that yeah, one. exactly is hip-hop halal and I condemn violence but <laughs> and so there were these were great debates and we'd have everything from Muslim rappers in there right through to so we'd go away from the usual suspects we never like to have the community well as we get and we'd also every show we'd have a non-Muslim we'd bring non-Muslims in there just to keep that mix. And it was like, look, this is proper discussion. It was just growing and growing and growing. I think we started hitting 50,000 regular views within a very short period of time. And then we just collapsed. We fell off the cliff. We had no flipping idea how we're going to make any money. I had no idea whatsoever. It was just a bunch of guys who were very good at making content, but there was just no way of monetizing it. People could say, why don't you put it on YouTube? Why don't you put it on YouTube? And I was like, well, why would I go into YouTube? How am I going to make any money on YouTube? That yeah, yeah. It's not going to make any sense. So we kind of had this website, we kept it in there. It was a difficult time. You just learn really hard how to hustle as an entrepreneur. You have that terrible moment, you sit four people down and been working with you for a year and say, sorry, there's no more work here for you. You hate yourself doing all that stuff, but you grow up, you realize actually, what does it take to run a business? Well, you have to do that yeah. better. So if you ask me about that time, yeah, I'd just say lots and lots of fail, fail fast, fail often, and you just fail, 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 fail and all the time you're failing if you're intelligent, like all science, you're learning, 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 learning. And what happened after that was we just kind of got funding to do six-part series called The Best of British Islam. And I convinced that we need to do this. We need to start saying what's good because that's what's missing. And we did six parts, six documentaries on British Islam, everything from Muslim soldiers fighting in the First and Second World War, Muslim women making a kind of stand for themselves, two Arab girls coming to Britain for the first time, meeting Muslims, seeing like what they thought was going on. And how was the reception with... It's fantastic that you've been doing a lot of this positive representation of Muslims. How was the response like from both the Muslim community, but also the non-Muslim community? And also just in terms of like hard viewership numbers, like was does this stuff sell? Well, we kind of started to occupy a strange space. It was no man's land and we made it our own. We didn't fit into the kind of Islam channels and the Muslim channels because suddenly this was content that you could watch on the BBC. It was of that style. And they didn't really kind of understand it. And not only that, but they weren't going to pay us. And we just had spent a fair bit of money on it. So we didn't want to do business with them. And then both the BBC and Channel 4 felt it was too positive. Perhaps we were too much waving the flag for positivity. So they weren't sure if they wanted to touch yeah. So it wasn't getting seen. That was the problem. So we distributed it DVDs and schools suddenly started to say, this is great. This is exactly the kind of thing. We've got these kids here who, let's face it, they need this view of Islam. We're seeing the problems here. So schools started to buy and that kind of was really good. And then I remember going off to Cannes where all television is bought and so we went to the big exhibition and 
suddenly 19 channels around the world bought food. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Nobody wants it here, but then Indonesia wants it, Malaysia wants it. Yeah, yeah. Just sell everywhere. From that, I ended up going to Malaysia for the first time and people, this guy's from the BBC and he's a Muslim. Suddenly all these doors opening, kind of like very important. Wow, you're a Muslim? You work at the BBC? Yeah, yeah. They had shown it. They were very interested. And then here came the kind of light bulb moment where they said, why did you make six? And I was like, well, that's just the norm. That's what we always do. We make six or eight. That's what you see in a series in the UK. And I was like, how many do you think we should have made? And he said, we could put this on every day. If you gave us 356 for the year, every single day people would tune in and watch it. And I was like, well, why? Why would they care? And he said, London Muslim cool. What you guys have, the kind of Islam you're practicing, the kind of ideas you have, the realities that you're dealing with, the successes you have, we just look to you. You're the thought leaders of 21st century Islam. And you've got people in parliament. You're living in a non-Muslim country. People are going into parliament. You're doing all these amazing things. You work at the BBC. This is just incredible. What kind of headscarves you wear there? What kind of music you listen to? He said, our audience is interested in all of this. And that was my introduction into the halal economy. And really, Malaysia was just kicking it. They're miles ahead of everybody, right? Mm. They had all sorts of ideas, built buildings, made banks, done all this kind of stuff. And they were moving into this idea of actually, okay, what are the sectors? It's not just food. It's going to be finance. And then this the idea of the three Fs came up. At first, it was food. That's the necessity. Then it's finance. Of course, money is important. And the third one is going to be fun. And it was like, okay, what's the fun in halal? Well, it's holiday, travel, clothes. And of course, media comes into that, entertainment. And suddenly I was like the only guy in the room who was like even thinking about making content for Muslims in that way. And everybody else who would come there was generally doing Islamic channels, which are conventional channels that teach you Quran and Hadith and all this kind of stuff. So suddenly we had this space and we've got this space to ourselves. We've got this, what was no man's land. Nobody wanted this real estate. We're the only ones there kind of doing that. And then I went for dinner and I sat next to these incredibly intelligent Malaysian women. What do you do? I'm the head of this bank. I'm the head of that bank. I'm the head of this hedge fund. Wow. And they said, what do you do? I said, nothing like that. I just make films. I live in it. And by the evening, they were like, listen, you need to get a channel off the ground. You're just thinking too small. Why are you just thinking about programs, like 10 programs or six programs? You could package this thing. There's a massive global demand for it. And I just thought, that's interesting. So I went away, started to research it. And that's round about the time when I kind of thought, yeah, we could do this. Because I had a couple of people come in, Habibi, we do a TV channel. And it's like, la sheikh, no thanks. <laughs> Is this where Alchemia started then? This is yeah, the it, it, it sort of gazelle media had kind of like proven itself to be unprofitable. It was just sort of like that world of television is just too costly. It's just too expensive. And it's suited to people who are in the system. If I'd made six programs and sold them to the BBC, I would have done very well. And I just kind of was too early. It wasn't right. It was all these kind of issues, really. It was interesting because we had a lovely office. We had all sorts of nice space and lots of people came. I mean, one day, a group of six guys from Turkey came who had all come to do their master's in media. And I had this friend, Farouk, in Istanbul. He said, look, they're my nephews. Meet these guys. And one of them, Ibrahim, he came. He wrote his dissertation on media management. We met a few times, sat, ate Turkish kebabs, talked about stuff. And then over the years, every time I went to Turkey, we would go and see him. And he progressed and progressed. And now he is actually the director general of TRT. He runs Turkish wow. State Television. And, of course... The conversations we used to sit down and have is, why aren't there any quality dramas about the Ottomans, about Ottoman history? And well, they smashed that now, haven't they? Well, it came out of those conversations. 
and the right mindset is there now. And every time I see Naveed, look, this is what we're planning for after Vertigo, this is what we've got. So you've got this incredible person in the right place with the right backing, and you're seeing the results coming out now because of it. Amazing. One of the other guys, Furkan, he was doing a master's in documentary making. So he made a film. Um, He asked me a few times to take a look while it was in development. I gave him my thoughts. And then when he finished, he said to me, can you have a look at the finished thing? I was like, how much did this cost you? And he said, oh, about £2,000. And I just said, look, I'm starting the channel. Because actually, I realized the money aspect of it wasn't going to be the barrier. For us, the barriers had gone. What we had was we understood how to make quality content. The price of the cameras had dropped. There were more people coming into the business. Young people wanted to do it. And actually, for me, it was a maturing. I kind of also thought, look, I need to just raise my game. I know I can find all this stuff and begin to kind of consolidate it. And of course, what kind of channel am I going to produce? Of course, it's going to be the BBC of Islam or the National Geographic of Islam, because I'm passionate about history. I worked in the history department. I didn't even think about the movies and the dramas and all of that. I just wanted to make 20 different films, the Soljiks or the Abbasids or whatever. And it's just for blokey guys like me who are really passionate about all this stuff. And I love the art. I love all the Islamic art, the mosques and all the architecture. And of course, as we started to kind of do the surveys, run a professional business, get in, meet all the focus groups, do all this stuff, you realize that the demand's there. It's got to also be female friendly. There's no point. We're over-dominated with blokes with beards running these channels, selecting yeah. the content. We have to have a female feel to it. It has to have, of course, intelligent stuff for kids. I mean, that's the massive market, which... It's just rubbish. It's absolutely embarrassing, the content that's being produced for children. And then also that's where this word came out, global urban Muslims. And I began to make a distinction. Yeah, okay, a quarter of the planet is Muslim, but there's just no way that the channel I'm putting together is going to appeal to everybody. The people I feel who are the most neglected are the most intelligent, the most educated. They're not getting a content delivered to them at the level that they need because, like, so you're Oxford and Cambridge educated, it's just some of it's just very trite what's out there it's just paper thin so you can't have one size fits all there needs to be differentiation in the market i'm not dissing those guys they do a great service they're community-based and they work for the majority of people who are their customers but increasingly a lot of my circle they weren't watching and they weren't interested in that and so we made this distinction which actually means that we probably are never going to be a mainstream muslim product but we know there's enough of a market that can really make it economically viable for us because actually the price has come down quite significantly and then on another level it's not a product it's not a service just like you might switch from netflix to amazon one day and back to disney it's a movement we're really asking people to come together so that we can begin to articulate and have a body of work which really represents who we are now a lot of what we've got is historical but who are we now who are we now how do we want to define ourselves we don't want to just define ourselves as taxi drivers and no offense right but it's also actually we represent intelligence we represent ambition we represent innovation and we have this growing idea of the halal yeah. economy we have to play a part in that and so for us yeah. we've kind of defined who our audience was and we've gone for that and we haven't spoken about amazon our time's almost up <laughs> well we should speak about amazon and i'd love to hear how that whole thing came about what your experience has been like and then, given the time, it would be great to also hear about what the future holds for Alchemia and Naveed Akhtar. So Amazon called us, actually, from Seattle, and we were quite shocked and very excited. And they said, look, we've got 22,000 titles in the Prime Library, and 
people are saying it's taking 45 minutes for them to find something and then they give up. So we're going to be putting about 70, 80 channels together. Some of them we put together ourselves, but looking at the data, we definitely wanted to do something for Muslims. And so we scoured around the world and everybody kept saying, look, go to Alchemy. They're the ones who are doing this. They're the ones who understand this. So we were quite, wow, we were quite touched. And at that time, we said, look, we don't have enough content. We don't think it's going to be worth your while to have us in that system. When we're ready, we'll come back. They're like, no, 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 digital land grab, really. You grab it and put it in. But they also, I think that there's talk of, just put it this way. I mean, the populations in the UK and US are insignificant compared to the populations in Asia. And I think that's where yeah. the long-term kind of idea is that that's where it will head to. And so, yeah, I mean, it's been great being with them. It's really helping the Sums are just going crazy because of lockdown and Amazon keep offering stuff. And people like it because I think they trust us. And why did we get that? I think simply the professionalism and also contacts. I mean, the contacts I have at the BBC means I can provide the right references, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, you've got to remember a lot of Muslim media projects are just good intentioned. They're well-intentioned people who think it's some kind of dawah or they'd like to do that. And they're not bringing any kind of professional history to how they're doing it. We're one of the first groups of people who've done that. I mean, we're now talking to other platforms who are interested in carrying it. Apple run channels, so they've got a slot in channels. Anybody who's serving Netflix is also interested in adding other versions of that on there. Yeah, um, brilliant. Yeah. Is it that you kind of buy the rights to various different assets and collate them together? Or do you also produce your own stuff as well? Or is it a mixture of the two? Yeah, it's a mixture of the two. I mean, we did produce two when we started out. It's obviously a lot more expensive, but that's really where we feel it will begin to have its own. There's no shortage of ideas of what needs to be made. There's huge gaps. I mean, I'm just putting together a collection at the moment on Pakistan, and I can find 10 films on the Red Mosque and Lal Masjid. I can find films on the Taliban in Pakistan. I can find films on you name it, economic collapse. I can find 50 films on partition. I can't even find a film on Baichai Mosque. There isn't actually even a documentary on Jinnah. There's a film on Jinnah, which has been caught up in a legal battle since it was made. So it's hard to get the rights. There's not even a documentary on Jinnah. There definitely isn't anything on Chaudhry Rahmat Ali. There's nothing on the Pakistanis Cambridge. I mean, we've got the only film on Iqbal that's worth showing. It's a sad state. If you go to Turkey, it's much, much better. It's very well documented history, heritage, what they're doing. Pakistan is really behind. Yeah. Um, Iran is very good. So, yeah. You guys do commission stuff as well? Yeah, and- I mean, we're seeing where the holes are, where people want to see things. We found a fantastic documentary on the Quran, a very comprehensive, because these are what I feel are the landmark series that need to exist. But there's nothing that's ever been produced by Muslims. So often we'll find content in the mainstream, which we'll scan it. We check everything. We do not want to be in any way be promoting anything anti-Islamic or anything that has negative issues in it or that kind of thing. So generally we have that filter there. But what we're hoping for is that actually there's something that comes from the Muslims themselves, which says, here is that. And what would a documentary on the Quran have in it? A five-part series or a six-part series? It'd be everything from the calligraphy to the stars of recitation. I mean, I filmed Second Hijra Mahil written Qurans on camel bone, and they're in the British Library. So the British Library loves to kind of say, bring them out and show you. They would love to make that film with you. But in order to do a decent job on it, you're looking at about a half a million pounds. 500 wow. that's why then you feel proud of it you think wow look at this because it's just produced beautifully done very well there's so many different styles of reciting the quran that you would need to film those experts 
and then just the kind of nuts and bolts history, right down to the printing of the first British version of the Quran, which in itself is enshrined with Cromwell and the Roundheads and that period of history here. And it comes in at a very important part of British English history because they were very threatened by the Turks. And so George Sale prints the Quran in English. And it's interesting how that's perceived. So all of this, it's a comprehensive thing. And this is what we were always told at the BBC. When you make this, you want to be making this so that people are going to watch it for another 20 years. That ambition, I know it's there. We're there. We have the skills. We have the resources. But it's hard to ask people just to do it out of the goodness of their hearts. You have to kind of spend some money somewhere so people can do that. Yeah. And Naveed, what would you say the future holds for Alchemia? Good, I hope. I mean, we're almost there. We will be probably the largest online library of content about Islam. And when I say content about Islam, I'm not talking about endless kind of sort of video courses on Quran and Hadith and all of that kind of stuff. I'm talking really from the point of view of here are films which have been shown on television channels around the world, Muslim world and the non-Muslim world. For me, if we become the most viewed Muslim channel in Israel, that'd be great. Fantastic. If Trump wants to view us fantastic, I'd be really happy. These are my ambitions that actually we get this to the people who really can watch it and see us in a different way, because that's really the ambition. So we kind of sort of just come out with it. We're not here to convert anybody. That's not really our job. All of it is that we are sharing with you what we care about and how we'd like you to understand us. That's really important to us is that people watch it. Jazak and I've heard for all of that. It's been a real education discussing this whole area with someone who has deep roots in this slightly mystical industry, I think, when it comes to Muslims. (laughs) I wanted to pick up just a couple of questions before we wrap up from the audience. Abu Bakr Abadi has asked when Alkemia will be available in France. Yeah, we're working on it. I think we've gone into about five countries in Europe. Because we deal with professional rights management, a lot of the content is very high quality. It's just the kind of stuff we can't just put on without negotiating all of that. And again, the thing we're, why a lot of people are working with us is because we're bringing revenue back to the producers. I mean, there's so much stuff just uploaded onto YouTube for free, which people have spent millions making. This is going to be changing soon. YouTube themselves are cracking down on that. Sometimes the delays that we're contracting. But yeah, France, definitely, we're working on it. Brilliant. And then finally, Asma is asking, do you think people will, through your work in the world, will look at Islam and Muslims in a more kind of progressive way? Oh, yeah, Rob, (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) I think you go crazy if you try to think too much about the end result. What you do is you have good intentions yourself, good near. You work to a possibility of what you're doing for you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this happened, if that happened? But I think for us, the main focus is you just get on with it. You just get on and do that. But of course, we hope it's there. I mean, we know the guys that launch good, they're great supporters. So what we're saying is maybe we'll go on there and look to give away a thousand free subscriptions to churches, synagogues, universities, where people might not want to try it and they can have a go. Brilliant. Well, Suleiman, my son has made an appearance and it's yep. probably an apt point to call a day to this. Jazakallah khair, Naveed. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Until next time, to all of the listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalamu wa rahmatullahi And please do try it, alkameer.com. Do subscribe, have a look at it. We need all the help we can get. Definitely. definitely. We need to support our own community initiatives if they're going to succeed. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum. 
Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank, a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com.